We are in Exodus chapter 12. Um, we've been through the plagues that have taken place and come to the point where Israel is about to be released. So, in Exodus chapter 12, looking at verse 31, speaking of Pharaoh, it says he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. It's a strange sort of closure in that uh, dismissal and discussion. You know, I, I go, fine, I'm sick of all the heartache and the uh, pain and uh, destruction that rebelling against God produces, but I still want that blessing. And it's so common uh, for us, you know, uh, as much as it's easy to look at Pharaoh and his conduct and criticize him, really he's just behaving in the way that sinful human beings behave. You know, he, here he is rebelling and resisting God, and uh, repeatedly God is sending corrective discipline to him. He hardens his heart and continues that resistance until you come to this point where, okay, I can't resist anymore, I'll give in, but I still want that which is good. He's going to experience all of the pain associated with rebellion, but he's still looking for Moses to bless him. In verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, uh, we, have, uh, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound on their clothes and on their shoulders. And now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And they, uh, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now I've talked about this recently, and you know, oftentimes as I express my views on any given subject, people grab a hold of that as though it's the end all on the issue or, you know, some given subject, and it's not. This plunder of the Egyptians that's described here, um, coming up in Christianity as I have, I've seen a number of changes uh, over my lifetime and especially in the 30 years where I've, you know, really been working in the ministry and watching things change. One of these terms that's come up is this term, plunder of the Egyptians. I talked about it recently, how there's a move inside Christianity uh, to look at, in particular, psychology and the benefits from psychology and say that that is one of the ways that Christianity has plundered the Egyptians that the unbelieving world has developed the science of psychology and that Christianity gets to glean and use the benefits of psychology. And so they've taken psychology from the world and they are plundering the Egyptians with it. I just want to be really clear. 
um, there's little in psychology that I agree with, and um, there's even less that the Scripture agrees with. Okay, if, if we took all that is God and you drew a giant circle, I use this illustration all the time in many different formats, and then you take psychology and you drew a much smaller circle and you overlapped them. What I've watched is Christianity dwell on the overlap and say, see, all of these things are what we're trying to discover in knowing God and psychology has it all for us here. So let's just concentrate on this. Look, to whatever degree that overlaps, right? we could take Satanism and do the same thing. We understand this? You draw the same circle and overlap it with Christianity, the Bible, our faith, and you're going to get a certain degree of similarities. That's not where we look on and go, oh, well, the similarities cause us to let's just embrace the whole thing. It's really dangerous. The plundering of the Egyptians just conceptually. Think about this for a minute. The plundering of the Egyptians here, it's back pay. This isn't them taking some huge beneficial thing from the Egyptians and saying, let's claim this for themselves. They've been treated as slaves for centuries. They're saying, this is restitution. This needs to be paid for us. The way that you as a nation have become wealthy was upon our slave labor. So as we leave town, we're going to take some of that with us. The benefits that were due them. One of the very first things that this nation does with the plunder of the Egyptians is they build themselves a golden cow. Christianity has, hear me in this, I don't care if you agree with it or it makes you happy or not, listen to me in this, take it as the warning, hear what I'm saying. A lot of Christianity has replaced God with psychology. I'm not talking about finding beneficial things and saying, oh, that shows me something about myself. I think I'll apply that. I found this nugget in psychology. I'll hang on to that. I'm talking about people that no longer think, function, or behave in a Christian sense, call themselves Christian, and all of their introspection, self-examination, and self-help comes from the realm of psychology. The Word of God is living and active. This is what we need to develop our relationship with. We need to let the Word of God have its effect on our lives. And, and largely, you know, many other areas that are considered plundering of the Egyptians, the church should just avoid it. We're so much healthier uh, without those corrupt things involved in our thinking process. Look at this again. He's going to you know, tell them to go and, and ask them to be blessed in the process of verse 37. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides the children. At least triple that number at, at a bare minimum. It's probably several times more than that. The 600,000 men being referred to here are fighting age. Uh, the whole point I'm trying to make is this nation is massive. Uh, you're, you're looking at a minimum, bare minimum of 2 million people. It's probably upward to 8 million people that are walking out the door right now. It's, it's going to be a cataclysmic event for the nation of Egypt. 
so much that they depend upon is walking out the door, going to find its freedom. You know, in the process of all of this occurring, you know, God has been teaching the Egyptians as well as the uh, you know people of Israel. Uh, you see in this verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them, flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. Okay, these are non-Jewish. Uh, we can safely assume from history, the Bible, and our understanding that you're talking about a lot of Egyptians, but they could also be people from other nations, a mixed multitude of people who've been brought into uh, Egypt, perhaps slaves, um, you know, not just raw speculation, there's some indication uh, that they lived in the same place in the same condition as the Jewish people and therefore identified with them and their struggle, chose to go with them. All of that sounds like a wonderful picture, you know, spiritually, the fact that people have joined Israel, identify with their struggle, identify with their spirituality, the worship of God, they're rejecting Egypt, they're departing. But quickly, this mixed multitude becomes a very serious problem for the nation of Israel. You turn the pages a few times and you get to Numbers chapter 11, verse 4, the mixed multitude is fueling a strong desire to return to Egypt at this point. Now, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving, so the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? And then the, the following statements are, let's just go back to Egypt. So we want to be very careful in both of these instances, the plundering of the Egypt or, you know, the admixture, the mixed multitude of people that goes with them, they have very negative effects on the life of the believer. We need to, as people, even as we're going through the process of God's growth, his maturity, his change, his freedom that he's creating in us, we want to be very cautious about the circumstances around us and how they're going to affect us. You know, uh, particularly people, places, you know, thinking as far as, you know, the plundering of the Egyptians. You start thinking like the Egyptians, and the next thing you know, you're behaving like them in a spiritual way. You know, you're sinning like them in the way that the world would go. Look at verse 39. It says, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. If that all seems a little odd to you, you know, why did they wait? Why did they keep the leaven out? What's that all about? We've talked specifically in our studies about how leaven is likened to sin throughout the Scripture. And God wants them to have this experience of Passover and the departure from the bondage they've lived in without the symbols of sin in their lives. It's supposed to be there as a marker to remind them of, you know, this isn't just an effort that they're going through. This isn't just one more leg on the journey. This is a massive change for them spiritually in every way. 
And as they're making this change, this idea of getting rid of the leaven is supposed to underline all of the gravity of the spiritual experience they're having. Get rid of the uh, you know symbol of sin. Get rid of the things which corrupt, corrupt and decay. So uh, as far as an explanation goes, leaven is a living organism. Yeast is a living organism. And when it's included in the dough, it's actually going through a process of digesting the dough. So um, I'll be as quaint as I possibly can. All of that swelling of your bread dough is the off-gassing of a living organism. Is everybody with me so far? Okay. Some of you are like, I don't get it. I'll explain it to you later, okay? <laughs> the yeast is a living organism that's eating your bread dough, and it's off-gassing in your bread dough. That's why it's swelling, okay? I'm not just trying to throw the humor in here. <laughs> the food source, God is saying, shouldn't have decomposition in it. And it shouldn't have off-gassing in it. Our spiritual lives should not have decomposition and off-gassing. It should be healthy. It shouldn't be decomposing. This urgency of this relationship with God in this moment that He's bringing them to causes them to, to have to reflect upon I can't have these things incorporated in my life. It goes much deeper than you know, just these shallow things. Everything that they're doing is changing in this moment. There needs, listen to me, you guys, there needs to be milestones in our lives. If we're just taking our approach to Christianity as fluff and just sailing through as smoothly as possible, there needs to be those times where we take time off work and we go away to the pastor's conference, to the men's conference, to the women's conference, where the bar is raised, where the challenge is put forth, where our heart is cut, and we're brought to the place of self-examination. They had to go through their homes and search for leaven and get rid of it in the process needs to be milestones for us. Here, that's where they're at. They're being driven out, and these people are traveling with them. They can't wait. A sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now, some people want to find discrepancy in this, and it comes down to this. Uh, the Lord had predicted that they would be persecuted for 400 years. And then when you examine it, it says they were in the country for 430 years. Then the critics want to say, well, see, the scripture's wrong because it says they would be persecuted for 400 years. They were persecuted for 400 years. They were in the land for 430. Joseph, as the leader of Egypt, gave them favor and they were without persecution until that Pharaoh passed from the scene. And now you have a new Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph nor the people. And the persecution begins. So the scriptures 
perfectly accurate, and now their time has passed. It came to pass at the end of the 430 years. On the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observation to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observation for all the children of Israel throughout their generation. So they are you know, being commanded by the Lord to remember this, to hold to this, and that it should be a night of observation where they looked back and remembered the Lord's deliverance. You know, I hope that um, you have those things in your mind where you look back and you can see the changes. I've you know, recently even shared, I've had a discussion with a person who was very distraught over where they're at spiritually. And there are things that are going on that they need to, we each need to pay attention in our growth and our changes. And, you know, the Lord will boil certain things to the surface that we need to deal with. And that's what was going on with this person. But their expression was, I've made no progress in all these years that I've been a Christian. I was startled by that. And at first I'm thinking, like, there must be something worse about this person's situation than what I think. And as they describe, what they're telling me is they're frustrated with their current state of maturity. They're expecting more out of themselves. And, you know, in the end I could agree with that, but I was able to help them go back to the beginning and say, let's, let's look at where you started with the Lord. And at, at first they just want to brush that off. I'm like, yeah, I know how stupid I was. I know how bad things were. But I'm talking about right now. Yeah, okay, let's talk about right now in a minute. Let's look at where you were when you began. Now let's look at where you are. Is there not a massive distance that has, you know, you've come over, that you've changed? There's so many things about your person, your behavior. Yeah, they can agree with that. That's what you need to remember and celebrate. If, if, if you are constantly just analyzing yourself about where you're currently at, that can be pretty disappointing a lot of the time. You know, what this person was expressing to me, I'm saying, no, no, no. I mean, the Lord had already done a bunch of stuff in your life before I met you. And then when I met you, you were like seriously messed up. And now you've grown to this place. You're not the same person you were. You can't look back across this corridor. You know, these things... The Lord has said and said to this you know, people as a nation, you need to remember these moments. You're going you're to come to Passover each year and you need to celebrate in remembrance of what the Lord has done. Do you do that, brothers and sisters? Is there a reflection? Do you at the end of each year open up your journal and look? You know, Open up the journal from 1989 when I surrendered my life to Christ and look at what I was writing then? Versus what I'm writing now. Big changes. There, need, there needs to be massive credit given to the Lord in what he's done. That's what the Lord is calling them to do right here. You're going to you know, do this each year and you're going to remember what is done. This is going to be a night of solemn observation for you. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. Now listen. Right now, you know, um, 
commonly when we get into uh, difficult situations as a nation, uh, you see a few leaders rise up. And, and let's be clear about leaders, right? <clears throat> leaders just lead people. Okay? That doesn't say anything about the destination. It just says they're leading. Right? So there are people within our culture that are leaders. You know, I, I hate to you know quote Tom Petty again, but when you don't know where you're going, any road will lead you there. Certain leaders just wander around aimlessly. We have in our culture people that claim to be leaders and those that our culture claims to be leaders. We get into these situations and they start pointing, oh, well, you know, immigration, and I'm not trying to be extra political here at all. You know, they'll point at the Bible and says, oh, well, you know, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. Well, how about this, what we're reading right here? No foreigner shall eat it. This, this isn't some comment on like our southern border here. What, what I'm talking about here is that for the life of the believer, if you're coming into the kingdom, there's a total conversion that has to take place in order for you to participate in this. You know, as a nation, Israel historically said, anybody's welcome to come here. Doors are wide open. As long as you become one of us. You don't get to come here with your ungodly plan. You don't get to come here with your murderous thoughts. You don't get to come here with your non-Israeli frame of mind and pollute and corrupt and destroy what the Lord is doing here. We have a similar freedom. It's actually based in their culture and their society in their Old Testament that we've built here in this land. And we're just letting anybody walk through the door and corrupt everything that we have. I mean, the biggest group of them is inside our government that's corrupting everything we have as far as believers go. You know, again, you come into these situations and people get upset. Oh, I came to church. I didn't want to hear politics. I hate that whole thing. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you're the salt of the earth. If you if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. Salt was designed by God and given to us and put into that expression by Jesus Christ as a preservative to keep the rot, to keep the corruption from occurring. Antiseptic was the number one use. Preservation was the number one use for salt in these days. No refrigeration. Everything got salted. We need to have our influence in our culture. You say, I'm not politically minded. Great. Talk to your neighbor about the moral compass of God's word that guides you. It's, it's the fact that the church is shrinking back and letting all of these things just take over that we're watching this happen. It's the church's fault. It's our fault in this room for not standing up, for not getting involved, for not opposing the direction that our culture has gone. I'm not talking about being an unloving radical out there screaming at somebody doing some terrible thing. I'm talking about lovingly relaying the truth of God's word to a sick and dying world all around us. Here, these people are told you've got to remember. And when you observe this, this needs to be solemn so that the people 
who are experiencing it with you are part of it. They can't be foreigners to it. Every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and his hired servant shall not eat of it. Someone who's not given over to the religion, I, I think it's unfortunate that we have so cheapened our relationship with God. You know, you know, there was a time, you know, the church today does not like, uh, you know, the hellfire and brimstone sermon. I'll just ask you straight out. Uh, you know, no show of hands or voice of opinions, just as far as what the scripture says. Does hellfire and brimstone exist? Yes. It's a real thing. And it exists for all of eternity. You know, uh, I saw a an atheist years ago who said the biggest reason that he does not believe in God is Christians because he said if God is real and hell is real and the Christians are truly convinced of this then they should be compelled with every waking moment to go out into the world and save everyone they can from that hellfire. And what I'm witnessing, this atheist said, is a bunch of Christians who are completely content to let everyone in the world go to hell. It's quite a condemning thought. How urgent are we about sharing this with people? You know, the number one motivation for people in not sharing is embarrassment. Imagine the day where you stand in eternity and you look someone in the face who's headed to hell that you could have shared with and the reason they're going to hell is you didn't want to be embarrassed. That's pretty condemning when you think of it that way. These people... See, the, the ordinance is set up in such a way, the reverence is set up in such a way that literally they're going to be saying to people amongst them, no, I'm sorry, you can't participate in this. This is our faith. This is our religion. This is a demonstration of the work of the Lord amongst our people, and you're not part of that. I'll never forget years ago, Raul Reese, a diamond bar, California, you know, preaching there. Raw Hispanic speaks with that heavy accent, and as the sermon begins, you know, he says, "You know, I'm just realizing this whole sermon is for believers, and if you're not a believer, you're not going to get it. So, if you want to be a Christian, raise your hand. And 150 people raise their hand, come to the front, accept Christ." Simply giving the invitation. Just saying, no, you can't, I'm, I'm about to share something you can't participate in. If you'd like to participate in it, then you've got to surrender your life to Christ. The church is so far from that, as far as its behavior goes. You know, this tolerance and this acceptance in the way that we're constantly trying to make the church culturally acceptable and relevant has robbed it. It's robbed the church 
of this reverence and what is needed. If you haven't surrendered your life to Christ before this morning, think about it because you need to before you walk out of the room. So let's read a little bit more here. So if they're not circumcised, if they're truly a foreigner, not converted to the faith, then they can't participate in it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. That was a clear indication to Jesus' sacrifice. Remembering, right, they were come with the hammer, and they were going to break his legs in order to speed up the process of his death. And they did break the legs of the other men hanging on the cross. They came to Jesus, and he's already dead. So they pierce his side with the spear and the coagulated blood because his heart stopped functioning and the plasma and the platelets have begun to separate. So water and blood spill out the side. Clear indication that he's already dead. Here, as they offer this sacrifice within their homes, cannot even break one of its bones. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Verse 48, when a stranger dwells with you, and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then let him come near and keep it. You know, think about that, right? The relatives are visiting and everybody's like, oh, Passover, we have a, we'd love to participate that. Can we do that? Sure, everybody just has to be circumcised. That's not like everybody has to contribute five bucks. That's like the sort of thing that everybody's going to go, wait a minute. You know, I've got to seriously think about this. You don't enter into this lightly. You know, oh, we're of another religion. We don't normally separate, you know, celebrate Christmas, but here we are in your home. Can we just, you know, share a few things? Yeah, okay. It's not the same thing, but there is there is a reverence that needs to be in place. Uh, believers don't hold, you know, naturally to the reverence of God the way that I think the world needs to see it. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, speaking to his students, one of his lectures said, um, "When you speak of heaven, you must summon the most joyful expression." you've ever expressed upon your face. When the world sees you, they must know that you're talking about heaven. When you speak about hell, your normal expression will do just fine. We, I do not believe, hold the proper reverence. And we need to be taught by the Lord. You know, here he is saying, no, if, if these people are going to share with you. They're going to have to be circumcised in the process. It's about as serious a request as you're ever going to give us. Oh, you'd like to share this meal with us? You'd like to be involved in this? Every male in your household is going to have to be circumcised in order to do that. It's a very serious thing. For no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells amongst you. Yeah, anybody's welcome to migrate into Israel. Sure, you know, at this time they're like, yeah, you know, you can come. Be you're gonna have to become Jewish. You have to worship with us. You know, so so when people are taking verses out of context, 
about the foreigner and about the stranger and about Israel's acceptance of them as though this is the standard God wants us to meet. Let's make sure that we're looking at the whole context. Because opening our borders and opening our doors to an unbelieving world, we've already got enough unbelieving world in our midst. Amen? There's enough of a mission field right here in America. None of us ever needs to consider going to another country. You already know this culture. You already know this language. Preach to the person standing right next to you, please. This world needs here one law for the native born and for the stranger who dwells amongst you. Thus all the children of Israel did. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on the very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies, rank and file, is the idea. There's a very systematic way that they traveled according to their tribes. Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it shall be mine. Now he gives an explanation to this that's much better than my rambling. So we'll just continue on here in verse 3. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No unleavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out. The month of Abib shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. No leavened bread shall be eaten among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your sons in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. Um, parents, by all means, don't let me influence you in ways um, that are incorrect. But you need to share to some degree with your children the sinfulness that the Lord delivered you from. Your children need to know this. If they're walking around with an illusion about my mom, my dad has always been an awesome Christian, and they don't know your sinful past, look, I'm not asking you to sit down with little Johnny or Susie and scar them for life, okay? I understand some of us were bad. I get that. But your children need to under and here's here's the thing. If you're frightened by that concept, if you're sitting there right now going, this guy does not know. I, I perhaps I don't. Okay. Follow me in this. Have you not looked at their little faces and seen that they're struggling their way through life? They're meeting the same challenges and the same temptations and the same difficulty that you are. What they need to know from you is how you relied upon the Lord to get through it. They need to see that in their life. You know, what the Lord is saying right here to these people is, tell your children how you were slaves. 
and tell them how I delivered you. That message needs to be relayed. I'll leave it to you how you do it, but let me just say it again. I think that that's from the Lord. I've watched many parents deceive their children, and I'm not talking like in an evil way, just by not telling them the reality of their past. There's a deception involved in that that does the sur a great disservice to the child. They go through life thinking, man, I wish I could be like mom or dad. They've never struggled. <laughs> Have we not all struggled in this room? In our relationship with the Lord, our walk with Jesus Christ, it is difficult. And the honesty of sharing that with our children is very beneficial to them. This is a big part of what's wrong in the church today. I've shared this recently. Ken Ham's book, Already Gone. All of these young people leaving the church when they hit college age. You know, we make the assumption in the church, people asking them, you know, it's those evil professors. You went away to college, they brainwashed you, and you left the faith. Ask those kids, and they all say, nope. That's where I got the boldness to finally tell you that I was leaving, but I left when I was 10 and 11 years old while you were still taking me to church. Why? The number one answer is, nobody explained to me why we believe what we believe. They just handed me the book and said, that's what we believe. And when they had questions, people didn't have answers, or worse yet, they were even ridiculed for asking. That's what all of those young people said. When they had questions, they would ask, and either they would receive no answer, or they were ridiculed for questioning their faith. This is what we all believe. Everybody believes this. You just believe it. It's not an evil thing for a child to say, uh, why do we believe this? Why, why do we do this this way? You know, you may run into things that are a giant scrambled egg. Like, what is the deal with Santa Claus? And you suddenly realize, I don't know what the deal is with Santa Claus. Why is Santa Claus here? What, how did he get into Christianity? And I'm just throwing it out there so you can walk away worried and go do the research yourself. No Santa Claus in our house. Never has been. Here's Christmas. We honor the Lord. We exchange gifts. It's a celebration of Jesus Christ's gift to us on that day. My kids were those weirdo homeschool kids. You know, who would say things like, no, Santa's dead. Yeah. And all their little friends go home to their parents all shocked and worried. I'm getting phone calls and having to explain why my kid's so radical and crazy and weird. Yeah. They accepted it. They were fine with it. You know, my, my five-year-old daughter, Christian, she's adult now, mother here with her children. But, you know, when she was five... Relatives thought it would be neat. Get a Santa to come to the house and bless Christian. She's five years old. Santa Claus comes through the front door. Wow, great. She goes through the whole bit. Sits on his lap, tells him what she wants, gets the gifts. Wonderful. He walks out the door. She turns to the family. I'm not making this up. Five years old and says, who was that? And everybody in the room is like, that was Santa Claus. And she's like, no. Who was playing Santa Claus? Who was the guy in the outfit? 
that whole room turned on me. On me. I was evil for having told my child the truth. And I went right to the subject. Okay, everybody in the room believe in Jesus Christ? They're all like, yeah. Everybody in the room teaching about Santa Claus? Yeah. What happens when we tell the child that Santa Claus is fake? But then we have to explain to them, but no, Jesus is real. Christmas, one and the same. Jesus Christmas and Santa Claus Christmas, one and the same. Santa's fake. He's watching everything that you do. He's judging you based upon it. He's preparing gifts for you. See, all of this is derived from the Scripture. But he's fake, but Jesus is real. So watch out for Jesus, but don't worry about Santa, and in the end it all just sounds like a pile of garbage. Truth. Separating fiction from truth. Do what you want to again with Santa. That's none of my business what you do in your house. What I'm saying is a lot of what's lost inside Christianity is because we aren't explaining to our children the truth of God's Word. We're not sharing with them things. They come here and they cycle through years of their life and walk out the other end going, I don't really know what that was about. I, I couldn't defend the Word of God if I was asked to. No one's trained them. No one's taught Consider. Consider what the Lord is saying at this point. So, you're going to teach them, and you're going to make sure that they understand this is a sign uh, that you're going to keep uh, during this uh, period of time when you're in the new land. You're going to keep these feasts of the Lord. Seven days, you shall eat the bread. Seven days, there will be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No unleavened bread shall be among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in any quarter. You shall tell your son in that day, saying this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes. The Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Having it even bound upon your person is what he's saying. This memorial, this celebration, it should be on you. you know, take whatever application you want. To. Your Christian baseball hat, your Christian t-shirt, your bumper sticker, your, you know, it should be readily available in your life, in your mouth, if nothing else, that you express things. I, I, I say praise God and God bless all the time. All the time in public. Just lock up traffic with it. Don't even care. You know, just standing in the checkout line and somebody starts describing to me some wonderful thing that happened in their family, their life, their children, and I'll just say, praise God. And watch everybody in a 10-foot circle just about faint. For, you know what I'm saying? I've, I've been told here in Ellsworth, you can't say that in public. To which I said, yes, I can. This is the freedom we have. This is the country we live in to share our faith. You know, bow your head and pray for a meal in a restaurant. 
you know, and watch everybody be as careful as they possibly can to avoid eye contact from that point forward. The world around us needs to see, our children need to see, it needs to be bound upon our hands, it needs to be on the frontlet of our eyes, it needs to be ever-present in our mouths, in our lives, that we're sharing this message of Jesus Christ's salvation. It came. It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you. So my promise is going to happen, as impossible as it seems, the Lord is saying, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal, which you have the males shall be the Lord. So give them to the temple, give them to the Lord. And every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, uh, for you will, uh, for, and if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So no human sacrifice, uh, no giving to the Lord human beings. The animals, the firstborn, need to go to the Lord. Uh, the donkeys, unclean, so can't be sacrificed to the Lord. You can pay a sum and keep the donkey if you're going to use it as a beast of burden or some animal for work. If you're not going uh, to redeem it, actually pay the money into the temple, you're just going to try to keep the animal. The Lord is saying you don't get to do that either. The animal, the firstborn, is to be put to death. I can't imagine, you guys, um, you know, I uh, don't mind hunting. I, I like that whole frame of mind. But at the same time, I very much dislike, you know, people that kill animals just for entertainment. I, I think that's wrong. You know, purpose, use, fine, in my understanding, in the biblical understanding, makes sense. But to just kill an animal here, put this animal to death if you're not going to redeem it. Th these things, you guys, as as much gravity as is involved in this, what the Lord is trying to point out to them is, you were as dead as this animal without me. All of these people were going to die. God stepped in and saved them from the circumstance. You know, you read through the scripture, and there's a lot of death. I, things I say all the time, you guys have heard me say endlessly. I had a group on tour in Acadia National Park this week, and um, the elderly mother in the group was bewailing uh, illness and death. And she kind of put this somber tone over the whole car, and I finally said, well, 10 out of 10 people die. And laughter goes through the car, and I turned to her husband and said, what you guys have all heard me say endless times, I said, the statistics are alarmingly high. And he laughs, and now the whole car's laughing. Death. It's coming for every single one of us. There's no avoiding it, how it comes, right? People, you know, I say things like this, and our mind is so opposed to death, it doesn't automatically calculate things. You know, just throw out some things really quick, like war does not increase death. Most people might, like, well, no, it doesn't. Everybody who dies in war was going to die at some point, so the death rate remains identical. 
We, we, we have distanced ourselves at every single opportunity from death. What the Lord is doing right here is making sure these people are recognizing their own death. They're looking at these animals and recognizing that could have been me. This could have been my child. This could have been our son, our daughter. And the Lord puts this ordinance in place perpetually. I want you to do this from now on. Measuring our days. right? I don't want to freak you out. Some of you are going to do it anyway. You can go online and find the death calculator. Put in all your stats and it will give you your expiration date. That'll sober you right there, you know, when it's next week. I mean, that, you know what I'm saying? I mean, just you put in all your stats, and the more stats you put in, the more accurate you are. It's pretty alarming how accurate they've been. You can look at some basic behaviors of people, and right, you're going to die is the point. Are you ready for that? This isn't just God saying, you know, I never really liked all those animals. Let's kill a bunch of them. This is God saying, if you're going to preserve the firstborn, it's going to cost you. Because you nearly lost all of your firstborn, and I provided salvation. We need to examine ourselves and our own mortality with a regularity. You know, teach us, when the scripture says, teach us to number our days. Have you done that? Have you sat down and just done like what the scripture says? You know, 65, 80 years old, where are you in that? Now calculate that into days. Now consider how many days you sleep in your lifetime. How many days out of your lifetime you brush your teeth. How many days out of your lifetime you eat food. I mean, you're left with like six days to live. You know what I'm saying? It's just stupid. Our days are consumed by all kinds of things. God is wanting this people to recognize the value of, of their lives. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? You shall say to him, By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn man, the firstborn beast. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that opened the womb. All the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and on your frontlets between your eyes. For by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. His strength saved us, redeemed us. Verse 17. And then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go. The Lord did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. Through, although, excuse me, rather although it was near. For God said, here I underlined this, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness in the Red Sea. The children of Israel went up in orderly rags out of the land of Egypt. I believe that is part of the reason that the Lord makes those first days when we've come to him and surrendered to him easier than some of the days that occur years later? You know, I don't know 
if you know what I'm talking about, but sometimes we get years into our walk with the Lord and things are really, really, really hard. And we're praying our guts out about, could you just make it easier? Like in those first couple years when I walked with you and miracles seemed to be popping up everywhere. Why has it got to be such an arduous task now? And what I hear in my heart, what I hear in the scripture is the Lord telling us it's going to be hard and we're going to have to learn to rely upon him. We're going to have to learn to pray. We're going to have to learn to wait, learn to be patient. We want it sometimes to be easy. You know, that whole American mentality of, you know, the pursuit of happiness. That's just the carrot. That's always a little further away, right? Joy is very different than happiness. When your heart is filled with the joy of the Lord, the world can crumble around you. And you may even become sad, but you're able to hang on to your joy. Sometimes, as Christians, we mistake happiness for joy. They're two very different things. Learning the process of walking with the Lord, I think that's why he spares us in the beginning, some of the difficulties. You know, I can remember days where you know, early on in my relationship with the Lord, I would ask, Lord, oh, please answer this prayer. And seconds later, there was the answer. And you just float on a cloud for the next, and you tell everybody you know, you won't believe what the Lord did. You know, it's like you got to call everybody at church and have an emergency meeting and declare to them the miracle that just occurred. Then years later, when you've been, you know, praying for your child to turn around and walk with the Lord for, you know, 18 years, they still seem to be walking their own direction. If you don't have a strong heart, you can start to say things like, where are you, God? Is there a God? What is this that I'm currently going through? God's very generous in how he trains us up. Very generous with this nation and sparing them the severities of war in order to keep them from stumbling. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. I like both sides of the picture where the Lord is saying, you will come into the land that I have promised you, right? We, we know that that's 40 years away at this point, right? They don't know that yet, you know. Imagine how many times they had to say, you know, no, we're not there yet. It's just a long ride for 40 years. These guys are trusting in that, and here you see Moses believing what the Lord has said. No, we're going back, so we have to take Joseph with us. The fulfillment of that heritage in faith is a wonderful thing to see. Verse 20, so they took their journey from Succoth and encamped at Etham, the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led the way by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, they were able to travel day and night. The scripture also records for us that that cloud completely enshadowed the nation of Israel so that they experienced the coolness of shade in the desert and that the pillar of fire at night 
warmed them. Any of you that have spent time in the desert know that that crystal clear sky, when the sun sets, all of the heat just evaporates right out of the atmosphere and it gets very cold at night. They had the cooling effect of a cloud and the warming effect of the pillar of fire for 40 years as the Lord made provision for them. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Constant guidance. I want to close with just these two verses. I hope we all know. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. The nation of Israel is going to have to follow God for 40 years. And the acknowledgement is going to have to get constant where they're waiting upon him and seeing his hand work. For us, it's the same lessons. The things the Lord has already taught us from the scripture, from ancient history, and from our own lives. We need to be applying day to day in the sense that God is trustworthy. That's the number one incrimination against the nation of Israel through this process as they begin to badmouth God. Over and over, that's the point of contention that God comes to with them as they are saying of God, God is not trustworthy. God is continuously trustworthy. Our emotions will tell us he's not. History and our experiences will show us that he is. We need to acknowledge him in all of our ways, and then he'll direct our paths. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love and your graciousness. I pray that you would help us to follow you, Lord, that we would have a great sense of faith, that we would believe you more than even our circumstances, more than the things that are staring us in the face. Help us to love you and trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.